You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. With me today from previously Home Care Heroes, now rebranded as Like Family, and I see you're wearing the T-shirt there. For those obviously on the podcast, you can't see a bright red T-shirt. Amazing branding. Like Family, Matthew Bertrand. I'm not going to try and do it with a French accent or a Quebecois accent, but I did want to start off. Um, you're from a part of the world that, funnily enough, I'm from as well. I was born in Newmarket near Toronto, ah. and it's a part of the world I would love to revisit. I think hopefully we'll be back there soon. How Canadian do you feel still? Uh, I was just having a discussion with someone before about you still can hear my Canadian accent. I've been here for 11 years, but there's words that I say incredibly wrong. It took me five, the first five years in Australia, it took me those five years to learn how to properly say mate. I don't even know if I still say it properly. So yeah, that's for you guys to decide. (laughs) Well, look, I've been here for for 20 years. I, I left Canada when I was eight years old and moved to London in the UK. And I still struggle with a lot of the words that they have here. It's still a duvet for me. It's not a doona. It's uh, I don't. I'm not, not sure that sunnies are are done. But you ended up in in Belgium studying. What took you to Belgium? How did it occur? Uh, wow. Back so and, and just back to your point. My wife is quick to correct me because she's Aussie, and if I say an Aussie slang wrong, she'll be quick to correct me. So I thank her for my language skills today. But yeah, like Belgium was kind of a random thing. I used to play. American football in Canada and at the college level. And when I graduated, there was an opportunity to study and play in Belgium. It was part of expanding the sport in Europe. And I took that opportunity. Funny enough, I met my wife and she was on student exchange as well. And I met her there. And since then, we've been together. So that was in 2009. Wow. The Belgian Football League, is that... uh, (laughs) I have to say, I mean, Belgium are the number one soccer team, which I would call football, but I didn't know there was any uh, American football being played there. Not a lot of people know. I didn't even know until some other teammates were playing in other countries of Europe. You know, like any sport that's trying to grow in certain countries. I, you know, Did you know that they have AFL in Canada? There's an AFL league in Canada? I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's these like very uh, – I, I only saw the other day there's an ice hockey league with six teams in Tasmania. I mean, really? like, you know, you, you find these sports are played in countries that you would never expect. I found as well in Turkey, I've met someone who was in a semi-professional ice hockey league in Turkey. So there's like – yeah, there's you can find a very niche sports in countries you wouldn't expect. <laughs> right. And I read as well that uh, obviously you, you moved over here, you started to work for the banks, the big banks, you know, obviously keen to get yourself established in, in Australia. And then at the same time, obviously, one of the pivotal moments in, in, in your life with both parents being diagnosed with some pretty serious conditions. I was trying to pronounce the words that for your mother's condition. It's a brain virus, if I understand correctly. I'm not going to try and pronounce the word, but perhaps you can educate me. It's known as encephalitis, and also some people say encephalitis, depending on 
on what you believe is right. I refer to it as encephalitis. There's different types of encephalitis. There's there's one known as Japanese encephalitis, which is different. Her specific brain virus is herpes encephalitis. So we all carry the bacteria of herpes in our bodies, but we don't all develop it. And if we do develop it into, it can often be developed into a cold source around the mouth, you know, most commonly due to unknown factors to this day, some reports claim that it's because of stress, malnutrition, and other factors. Her her bacteria developed in her brain, and that caused the brain inflammation to a point where it reaches the skull, and it starts killing brain cells in the brain. Basically, what had happened is one morning, she said this time she was looking after my dad who had been, you know, he was going through chemotherapy because of lung cancer. So when she woke up one morning, he, you know, they're, they're living in the same house. And she started talking to him, just like I'm talking to you, in your head, it makes sense. So in her head, it makes sense what she was saying. But what he was hearing sounded like an alien. So imagine you talking and you think you're talking normally, but the other person, what they hear is completely different. Like it's not even a language. But that's when my dad was like, that does not sound right. There's something wrong are you okay? And then she would just go, yeah, I'm okay. But like, instead of hearing, yeah, I'm okay, you would hear blah, 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 blah. So yeah, so she brought her to the hospital. And, you know, luckily, as soon as they got to the hospital, they ran a few tests. And the first thing they had to do was inject her with something to reduce the inflammation because they noticed that, that that's what was happening in her brain. She went into a coma for three weeks And my dad didn't call me for a week into her coma to let me know because this is back in Canada. And his reasoning was that he didn't want to worry me. And, you know, he was right. Like, as soon as he called me, I was extremely worried because my dad's doing chemotherapy. He's very frail. He's 77 years old and my mom is in a coma. So, you know, uh, as anyone who's an only child would panic. And especially being on the other side of the world, I spoke to my employer at the time, and they helped me actually work from Canada to look after them for six months before we moved them to Australia. Wow. I can only imagine, as you say, as an only child on the other side of the world, the concern you had. And and, and luckily, you had an employer that was uh, accommodating. I feel now very sorry for some people. If you think about the situation that you had faced, and you fast forward to 2020, what, what do you think the outcome would have been now? What would your choices have been? And, and how would you think you'd have been able to react? And how would you have supported your parents in, in this COVID situation? That's a great question. The whole idea, I guess, you know, what I would have done is reached out to a service like art, and I'm not plugging in our service. But that's the whole reason we created like family. Because when we even when we moved them here, if I was working my full time job, it was very worrying to know that they could easily get lost if they were just going out of their house, going for walks, they would get very disoriented uh, easily. They didn't know anyone here. So just having someone who you could trust to check up on them and make sure they had what they needed. So if they were on the other side of the world in this COVID environment, having someone in Montreal that that I can trust and I can check on my parents, make sure they have groceries, make sure they've got enough food, meal preparation, maybe even some life admin. Like even today, like I was talking to my, so my mom actually, then it took about four years for her to recover. And okay. Again. So the brain started repairing itself 
by purely doing community participation and stimulating the brain. The neurologist, when she was first admitted in the hospital uh, and she was in coma, you didn't recognize her. She went from the rock of the family to someone who couldn't eat, talk, or walk for herself. So she needed support for all those things. So it was literally like starting over. And the neurologist said the best thing you could do is send her back home into her environment, get her stimulated, get the brain repairing itself. And we were very hesitant to do that because she was in a safe environment at the hospital. She was surrounded by support staff. So doing that was a bit of a worry. But when we did that, we saw significant improvements in her health and well-being. So she's been living independently now, back in Canada for, for two years now. But I had a conversation with her two weeks ago. And her TV hasn't been working for months, like for six months, and I didn't know about it. I speak to her, you know, four times a week. She, she just hadn't told me about it because she didn't want to worry me. So, you know, having someone that could have checked up on her and see, you know, like, because other than the TV, like, there's nothing much she does. Um, she plays crosswords, which is really good for her and her brain, and she likes it. But, you know, I wish she could do other things as well, like, instead of just sitting there with the new local newspaper and playing crosswords, I wish she could do other stuff and maybe learn about time and learn about Skype which and WhatsApp. You know, I, I send her pictures. My wife and I go through some things we want to share with my mom. She she can't even use WhatsApp. So I always have to send pictures to our her friends and my family back home for them to show her. But if we had, you know, someone like who felt like family again, not trying to plug it in, you know, someone that could, could do that for us on a regular basis and teach her new skills, et cetera. That's, that's what we're looking for. That's the biggest gap and problem for us. It's not, you know, she doesn't need nursing or personal care at this time. She just needs some companionship. So as far as I'm understanding, so you've created an amazing organization like Family, and I know you've said a couple of times you don't want to plug it, but we are here to talk about <laughs> what it is that you've created because it's amazing. Yeah. But I think that it's, uh, and I didn't realize this when we, you know, when I've done some research on you. So you've actually still living in a situation where your business, the solution that you've created, would be of benefit to your your mum. She would very much greatly benefit, as you say, from the non-medical, not personal care so much. It's just, as you say, community involvement, engagement, access to technology, pictures for being sent from you and, and your wife. Wow. It's amazing to me that having created what you have done, and it's an amazing organization, and we'll come to that, but you, you are still living in, in this paradigm situation where the benefits to your mother that you've demonstrated by her engagement, the brain has recovered through that. You, you're seeing the demise of that and, and the struggles that she has with accessing community. Uh, you know, it's still, it's a remarkable personal journey that you've been on. Yeah, and the vision is to expand globally so that, you know, one day our services can actually help us personally, even though right now our services can't help her in, in Canada. Yeah. So let's let's just talk about, so you moved your mom and dad over to Sydney from Montreal. You were working full time. They needed to, as you say, just have some support to access the community. And you've, you found that a struggle to find people that were interested in that role or, or you found people, but there was no, there was no platform or engagement. Run, run us through the sort of early days. Yeah, early days. Wow. It's always great to, to talk about the early days and where we are now. Basically, we, we thought we did, you know, both Jen and I had quite 
good jobs with really good employers so making so at the time you know looking after them was very stressful but financially we we managed we, we were okay you know still very expensive looking after two grown like two adults who are not Australian residents so you do have to pay a higher premium for certain things like insurance but yeah so when we were working full time it, it was really apparent that we we weren't getting what we we I was constantly going to my employer asking them if I could have some days working from home and this is back in 2006 no 2000 sorry this is back in 2013 so working from home was a, a very a privilege it wasn't just given so yeah, working from home would allow me to look after my parents and provide them with what they need and go to the groceries, go to doctor appointments, do all those things. We had a, actually one of my best friends in, in Australia, He his girlfriend at the time, now his wife, is from the United States. She moved here with him and... She kind of was working part time and, you know, we would tell her about our situation and she would say, well, you know, I've met your parents. We've spent Christmas together. Why don't I, 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 I do that? I help you guys out. And we didn't want to feel so one of the things that we felt was that we, you know, we, we experienced using volunteers. We experienced using support workers. But the biggest problem with volunteers is that you know, with, with some of the tasks that we needed to do, it does require some level of like, you really have to be on time. There's expectations and we still need you to provide feedback. Like we, it needs to be considered like, like work in a sense that, you know, it, it, it it's, it's, a, it's a really a service that fell right between like volunteerism and, and, a, you know, what yep. is known as a support worker, a professional support worker. And, and she kind of, our friend, um, and I'm, I'm not making this story up. I always say this, but her name is Destiny, okay? So because people think I make this story up. Her name is Destiny, and she literally literally came to the rescue because she fell, she fell in that gap. She fell with, within that gap of person who is looking for casual work, doesn't have any qualifications in disability, but she can do the things we need her to do for my parents, and she can improve their well-being. And, and also the, mo- the biggest thing was that my dad really liked her. He really enjoyed her company. And that was very rare for my dad to enjoy companies of someone who was helping him. Very proud person, as you can imagine. They, mm-hmm. had, they had things in common. They, had, they both played musical instruments and he was a former jazz musician. And, and so they had similarities that also helped with that bond and that, that company. And so she would go on Fridays and Saturdays and, you know, either take them to the beach. Canadians love the beach because it's a luxury to go to the beach as a Canadian. So my parents were always there with her. You know, she would help them with groceries. She would help them implement the exercises that the physiotherapist would design. So physiotherapists would design exercises, but Destiny would help him do them because otherwise he wouldn't. <laughs> um, so, so it was uh, it, it was a way of... No, I, I don't want to say manipulating, but it was a way to get my dad to do the things that were necessary for his health. And yeah, so so that's when we were like, oh my God, okay, this is working. And we would pay Destiny because we we were we really valued the service she was bringing. So then it became a reoccurring thing week on week. And Jenna and I, were we saw an opportunity. So we, we both, you know, while we were working corporate, we were also working on our own startup which was something completely different in, in the fitness industry, more of like a couple's yep. training. It sounds really lame when I think about it today, 
but you know it was it, it that was our first that startup we ended up shutting it down because it wasn't a problem that we were solving this what we were experiencing where we're living what we're living today is a problem that we're trying that that can be solved so we jenna was the first one to quit her job she started working on the business model i waited about so she when she started the you know, creating the business model, uh, implementing. We got you know someone to design the the word the word the website, and I followed six months later, quitting my job. We because of that we had no work. We had two full time people that were looking for uh, looking after. Sorry, it meant that financially we had to move back to Jenna's parents' house. So we were staying at Jenna's parents' house in Sydney, while looking after my parents and having no job. So it was a massive, massive risk. I just remember how uncertain the future was because we had this this business model that was not valid, wasn't validated. We had no idea if we had product market fit. And funny enough, we, we sort of persevered and took that risk. We we did balance the financial risk with doing some... So I, I'm a certified personal trainer and she's a yoga instructor. So on the side, we were doing we were doing that. So you know that kind of helped financially a little bit. And we had some savings as well. But... The first, so the the sequence of events, this is where it gets really complex. December 2015, we've got the business model. We decided on a launch date in January. December 18 of 2015, my dad passes away. January, we launch. March, Jen and I, we had already planned this in advance. March was our wedding date. So we were getting married in March 2016. So we launched the business, had no job move back to her parents, my dad passes away, and then we get married. So very hectic, what's that, four months? Yep. And then we go on our mini moon, which was really just a trip up to Port Douglas. For two weeks, we come back to Sydney, and I jump on the website. We had made $800. And I, I remember going, this must be a mistake. I, I, I kind of, and when I say make, I just mean like in terms of like, you know, that's, it's, it's just like turnover. It wasn't a profit or anything like that. It was just the service. But I remember screaming to Jenna and going, come back, come here, come see the computer. Uh, like we have a customer. I can't believe it. You know, you look at the customer, you follow like you kind of try to learn as much as possible with that customer, how they found us. And that's when uh, the, the first customer was uh, someone with living with cerebral palsy and they had heard us through a, a support coordinator. And so that's when we started learning about support coordinators and the NDIS. We followed that trail, which then led to learning more about the customers, improving the product along with the feedback we were getting. And within the first six months, we went from that one customer to 20. So not much, so one customer to 20 customers. Yep. And then we became an NDIS provider. And then we went from 20 to 200. So then, and then it just kept going and going and going. Now, what's really, really interesting about those early days is we thought we were solving a problem to help people like my parents, so primarily uh, older people, maybe more aged care. And that's why even the word, the name Home Care Heroes at the time, we came up with that name because our friend Destiny felt like a hero yep. to us. And because she was literally solving a problem that we thought was impossible to solve. And home care, well, we didn't really get we weren't like experts yet in the industry. So home care just sounded like the right thing to say. But in fact, 
it's not really what we do. It's actually the opposite. What we do is we we help people engage in the community and go out and we want to help and stimulate people emotionally and psychologically, just like we're trying to do with my parents. So the whole word name Home Care Heroes was actually, actually now that doesn't make sense today. And what was really interesting is that the majority of our customers that were coming through were between 18 and 25 years old. So then we were like, well, that's really interesting. So the similar problem we were having with my dad, who's 77, who's got cancer, is a similar problem that 18 years old, uh, someone with 18 years old with autism is experiencing. And the same, uh, a young man or woman or anyone who's 18 years old and has autism and a a 77-year-old man who's got cancer are actually both really proud. They don't want to be seen, you know, to go out in the community. It might not be cool to be seen out with a support worker in a uniform or whatever. Maybe they just want to be with someone they get along with who shares similar interests, maybe same age group, you know, similarities, because it makes them feel like they both, like it, it, it helps them maintain their dignity. So we observe some really, really interesting thing, like facts like this. And, and so, yeah, we, we just grew from there, essentially. That's, I hope that was a clear summary yeah, of early days. Yeah, I'm really interested in 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 in, uh, in that last point that you made there. The, the the concept of matching people's interests and giving people something that they have in, in alignment. And you know, you mentioned your your dad and Destiny, both musicians. Those sorts of the nuances of those relationships, or the, the basis of that chemistry, is critically important to to the relationship building you know you don't want to be having someone that you're not aligned with uh, mentally physically uh, or in interests so it's, it's really interesting how how do you how do you though i mean that's great when you've got people of interest how do you deal with the reliability aspect you mentioned that you know the the, the, the sweet spot between volunteering and a paid support worker was sort of where you found the niche one of the things that's come out of what i found with it with talking to people is, is a reliability issue you know that sort of uh, the, the the plaque on the wall of the factory that says days since accidents well a, a, a colleague i was speaking to said days since someone didn't turn up and they would very rarely get into double digits and that to me is really it's remarkable sad actually that that's the situation in this in this um, industry how, how do you and and your you know your team how do, how do you mitigate that concept of people not coming to, to you know not not being reliable feedback 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 like getting getting a really strong feedback loop is instrumental after each booking from social from our social carers and our members maybe and then the support coordinators involved if they're involved uh, it is extremely important because the feedback loop enables you to analyze trends enables you to be proactive so it's not about being reactive for us it's all about like our business is set around preemptive so we, we call it preventative care right so we, we try to help people before before something it requires medical help or, or higher care needs. So in the same aspect, when it comes to reliability, you've got to be proactive. You've got to be, how do you prevent unreliability? Well, the only thing you can do that is get feedback. And if you've got social carers that are unreliable, you've got to remove them from the platform. You've got to give them feedback. You've got to train them. So you've got to do things that are going to improve that reliability. We have a very, and this is very ironic, because although we don't serve it, we don't provide the same level of support than other platforms, 
we've got a very thorough onboarding and we meet every single social care in person and we actually reject 20% of people who sign up. Wow. Part of the reliability factor is to also onboard the right people who are in it for the right reasons. Mm, mm. And that's really, really important. And our workforce is different because we don't attract necessarily people who see themselves as workers. We attract people who are looking for, have really good hearts and want to help someone in their community. But also that person who lives in the same suburb or locality as they do, if they need someone two hours a week or one hour a week or you know whatever it is, specific requirement it matches their schedule, they're more likely to stick with them because it suits both both parties. First, the social care isn't financially dependent. And so I think the high in this industry, unfortunately, from what I've seen, a big reason for unreliability is because some people are chasing better financial opportunities. And mm-hmm. it may not be you know, it's a, you know, sorry if I'm being honest, but it's true. Like some people may not be in the right reason and it's very financially driven and that's fine as well. But if you're changing customers just because you've got a better opportunity without having a proper handover for someone who is, who needs help, then that's not very professional. So I think there's a lot of factors in this, but I think as a provider, what you can do is collect data, get feedback, and have a strategy to be proactive with that feedback. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, obviously the, the intention is to go global. I've seen you, you're expanding now from, you know, originally the home base in Sydney. You've gone up to Newcastle, Central Coast, I think, as well, and now down to the Illawarra. The model itself, uh, is it restricted by that, the fact that you meet everybody and that, that, that sort of personal touch? I mean, I, I would have thought you've, you know, the, there'd be people in Perth and Adelaide and in Cairns and in, in Darwin that would love the, uh, the, the, the like family model to come up there. Is, is what, what's, what's your expansion prospects and goals? I, uh, you know, I'm sure there's private equity sniffing around and wanting to invest in you. What, what's your ambitions at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... We are in Melbourne now, by the way. Great. Did I tell you that? You did not tell you that. No, that's exciting. I didn't know that. I've, I've read a, a lot on you and a lot about you. So that's exciting as, as an expansion. I knew you'd come to the Illawarra. So uh, how's Melbourne going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Melbourne is as of the 1st of October. It's going great. We've got city manager there. And look, a, few, a lot of people have said, you know, why aren't you in Perth already or Brisbane? And for, for us, it's been really important to, to, to do, do it right in the sense that we really wanted to get the service delivery and the model correct. Like we, we didn't want to expand too quickly. Our, our philosophy has always been around quality versus quantity. A good example of that is like, for example, you know, things like the, and, and, and to your point, some people have said, you know, having those group face-to-face deductions isn't scalable. But, you know, if I compare... How do how do people become Uber drivers? You know, they've got to go. If you're in Sydney, you've got to drive all the way to Concord to the Uber office. You've got to meet someone. You got to show a driver. You know, you got to do a lot of steps to become an Uber driver. But once you're an Uber driver, you've been verified, and it, the fact that you've gone through all those steps shows commitment. Yep, you're committed 100%. to the platform. If it's too easy to join an organization, you're not committed. So one of the biggest strengths for us has been retention because of the quality. 
the retention has been super high. Rather, the, the other strategy would be go aggressive, spend a lot of money on marketing, increase acquisitions, grow your user base. That's a different strategy. We're, we, we prefer our strategy. That's all. <laughs> I have to say I applaud you for it because I, I think being laser focused on, on what it is that you do as an organization, I'm sure you'd have had lots of people tell you that you should be doing lots of other medically based care or all of those other things that you, of course, could be doing if you wanted to. But you've got a laser focus, which is remarkable and, and admirable, I have to say. It's uh, something that I've, I've watched because I've, I've been watching you grow and it's been exciting. I, I mean, I know that we haven't had much chance to interact obviously our clients use you know use your organization and and that's always been the case but i've been uh, i've been admiring from afar the focus that you have retained and i think you've benefited from that your brand is strong but also as you say the the delivery is what uh, we know what you're you know judged on and what you'll be re- you know remembered for uh, which is you know as i say it uh, but it's it's tempting how, how do you stay so focused very strong attachment to to the mission and and the cause and the, the purpose it's yeah just stay focused have your vision drawn up and look at it regularly don't try to get distracted by the loud minorities is uh something i'm still learning you know with the rebrand not everyone is happy there's change you know people are used to the previous website websites changed you've got people who aren't happy you know, you, you got to understand that, but you got to stay focused on, on the, the, the goal, the vision. It's really, really important. So your point to that, I couldn't agree with it more because I'm living it right now going through this rebrand about that. And, you know, I was going to say to you as a business owner yourself, with uh, early days, we had advisors even telling us not to use the color red. <laughs> and we, right. we, we, ignored, we ignored that advice. We just went with what we believed worked for us. I, I have to say that that commitment to your own vision. Obviously, you know you've you've been through startups that, as you say, you, you look back on they and they they you know they didn't come to fruition or they did come to fruition, but they they weren't quite as successful as now. And backing yourself is a strength, probably a curse as well. Manny might say. Talk me through the the rebrand. I mean, I I referred and and I'm apologies for not knowing that you had changed, but um, you know I referred to you, Matt from Home Care Heroes. You know, the the like family, the, the decision was based around, as you say, everyone feels like family, hence the, hence the name. And, and it, But you say you've had some uh, pushback from the rebrand. And t- tell me, what, what, was the, what was the thought process? Yeah, well, we did. Uh, so the, the feedback around Home Care Heroes and the fact that it didn't sit right with us and what we offered has been on our minds for since, for, from year two, I would say, because year one, you know, we were so small that we didn't really, it wasn't an issue, but it became an issue when I would go to expos and I would literally have people walking past or like a, a mother and her son or, you know, you know a parent and, and their, their daughter. And I would chase them and I would go, hey, you didn't grab, you know, a flyer from us. And they would go, oh, we don't need home care. And I'd be like, yeah. oh my God. No, no, no. Let me explain what we do. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So the the name change was uh, was something that had to happen, and it's kind of like a band aid. You have to pull it. Just you know, you got to do it. When there's never going to be a right time to do it, uh, you just have to do it. So we decided on date October first. We communicated to our community, 
and we ripped the Band-Aid off and did it. And in the same process, we also improved our technology, which is the feedback we've got from, again, some uh, users is, you know, and if it's the same for anyone. It's if you're used to using the, the same website and used to knowing where everything is and what it looks like, and then it changes, there's a period of adaptation and, you know, it's going really well. Um, like some people say, oh, I used to love the name Monkey Heroes, but then when we explain the reason for the change, they also go, oh, okay, that makes sense. And uh, I'm really proud of the, the work the team has done. The website is amazing. The It's going to be faster for users to, to use it. It's like this is an investment we've, we've actually put two, two and a half years in. So uh, wow. the, the other thing that a lot of uh, people don't realize is the amount of work that goes behind a website. Like I'm not a technical person. I've had to learn the work that goes that gets involved, and it's more than you expect. It's incredible. Hundred uh, percent. I had a conversation with my marketing team yesterday, and it was very much around that that we've been doing lots of little bits, and collectively that means that we're sort of all, you know we're we're an unwieldy you know not consistent organization represented in a digital footprint, and that's a, fr- a frustration for us. Uh, so I, I fully applaud you for the for the rebrand, and 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 I, I look I. I, I'm not a fan of red, it could be because I'm a bit ginger, but I think it suits you. And I, I love the fact that you can see the like family team with their bright red t-shirts and, and you know, whether people want to be branded or not, I, you know, it's definitely something that stands out in the marketplace. And I wanted to, to ask you, you know, obviously you've got a, a bright future ahead of, of you and the organization. COVID, it's obviously affected us all. I think my concerns are for, for the mental health of, of the greater population. Are, are you getting some feedback from your team and your clients around how it's affected them? And, and, and do you see it as, a, as something that's going to cause problems for years to come? No, the, the response, okay, I'll start with our community. The response from our community has been incredible. And I'll be more specific with that in the sense that people have reached out and provided us with some ideas that we haven't thought about before. And so the the resilience and the innovation that's coming out of COVID is is the bright side. It's it's the optimistic side that there is opportunities and we have increased our backlog of things that we want to improve and we want to work on and consider that COVID is just going to be part of our lives. You know, I, I know that sounds really sad and maybe upsetting for some people they just want COVID to disappear but let's approach this as if COVID is never going to disappear and we're going to be able to think of innovation and, and continue and you know it's we've been advocating about social isolation and loneliness for since we started because that's the mission but you know it's it's been social isolation has been spoken about more than anything in the last you know since years so we're we're going to keep working on 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 new technology, innovation, innovative ideas, and uh, growth opportunities. And our team internally that is working on that, which by the way, we're only fourteen people. They are working really? extremely, hard. and yeah, they're super motivated. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I love that. I I, I am always myself 
very, very positive person. You know, incredibly, you know, glass half full. And, you know, and for me, absolutely, it's been a chance for us to re-engage with our client base, you know, to, to, to reach out to them and show them that we, we are there for them to support them. You know, it's, it's, it's enabled us to, as I say, to reconnect with a lot of other individual stakeholders, family members, you know, in our community, it, you know, for, for the greater good. Predominantly, we've seen that. I, I think sometimes the news and the media is very much, you know, that we want it all to go away. But as you say, it's not going away. Obviously, Royal Commissions at the moment into aged care, there has been some poor management of that process in Victoria particularly. Your your views on the NDIS and the you know the aged care sector going forward, is there, is there a goal that you think that we will achieve in, in years to come to, about collective responsibility towards the population that are disabled or aged? Yes, there needs to be a greater sense of collaboration between providers instead of competition, in my opinion. I believe that there's a lot of, I, I think the government is, what what the government's done, like, to be honest, you've got to applaud it. Like, the NDIS is an absolute amazing, it's the most amazing thing when you look at government schemes around the world, if you compare it to other countries. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to give it to, to, to our government. Uh, I'm extremely proud of that. I think we need to have as service providers more collaboration, more, more innovation, and you know, there's uh, there's a lot of again we we talked about change before and people getting used to a certain way things are done. You know, we spoke about this at a at a level of you know rebranding, but I also think that at the level of how businesses operate, it's not always what you we used to work 30 years ago is not not necessarily going to work today. You've got to be open minded. You've got to, I think providers need more now than ever to be focused on what they're good at. And together, collectively, we can help the people who need the help instead of trying to compete for clients. There's more, I think we're going to learn a lot. Again, there's there's we're still early stages. We're going to keep learning as the NDIS and you know, consumer direct care and aged care continue to evolve. Home care packages continue to, you know, that the legislations are are, are improving. There's, you know, submitting inquiries and then providing lobbying for, for certain aspects of aged care and NDIS. And that's just going to lead to more improvements. So I think overall, we're heading in a great direction. I think it's really up to the the people within the industry to they also play a big role. It's not just the government that, you know, to do everything, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And look, I, I have to say, when you reached out to me, I think I was in March when I was in Adelaide, I very much have the sense that you're open to that collaboration. I, I feel the same. I, I think, you know, we, we all are here. There's opportunities for everybody to create that positivity and that positive change in, in, the, in the industry that we're working in. Collaboration, as you say, does need to continue. And I, and I applaud you for that. You reached out to me and I reached out back to you when, when I wanted to have this chat to you and you, you came straight back. I think more individuals like yourself that are continuing to, to behave like that and to demonstrate that they can be both successfully uh, in business, but also you know open to whatever else may come their way, is a fantastic look. I thank you very much for your time. I think it's been an amazing journey for you. Thank you for sharing it. Some for some very personal stuff you've shared with us. I applaud you for being resilient in those four months between your father's passing and your uh, coming back to see uh, the first bookings. It's always exciting first bookings and and, and then watching you grow. I. I 
be in awe of you in the next few years watching you continue that journey. And I, I'm very much uh, hoping that that global domination does come eventually to you because I think that the service you do is amazing. Oh, thanks, Max. Appreciate it and love the work you guys do as well. That's awesome. All right. Thank you, Matt. This is Rock Solid People, a podcast about amazing individuals and their journeys and their stories. Stay tuned. We have some more exciting guests to come. Thank you, Matt, from Like Family. Thank you, Max. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.